grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. If you're about to get into stand-up comedy, you got to know ahead of time, there are quite a few comedians who are not exactly fond of Christianity. Over the past couple weeks, my wife and I have been watching stand-up comedy together, and one comedian said, when referring to the Bible, he said, well, guys, come on, it's clearly fiction. And just the, the next time that we watched a comedian, uh, she said that the God of the Old Testament is so clearly not the same God as the Christian church worships now. Now, I assume that a lot of you don't agree with those assessments, but you can kind of see where that comes from anyway. I'm sure you've heard similar thoughts in your conversations or you've read things the same way. A lot of people think, especially the Old Testament, is this far-removed collection of short stories of people that existed so long before we live now that it has nothing really to do with us so your kids, they come to Sunday school, and the Sunday school teachers have to take on the task of showing them why these lessons are important to know, do have a place in history. But you think about a church like the one in Corinth. The majority of them were Gentiles, were non-Jews. They had no ethnic connection to the people of the Old Testament. And maybe as week after week the Old Testament lesson was read in worship, similar to the way it is in our worship service, maybe the Corinthians fell into that temptation to assume that these lessons were talking about someone else. We're talking about a different people that, had, that lived way far in the past, a different God even that tre treated those people differently than he treats us now. But I wonder if people aren't just scared. I wonder if this idea that the Old Testament has nothing to do with us doesn't come from a little bit of fear. Because as we read the Old Testament, we see some people do some very foolish things. And if these stories are true, which we believe they are, then they reveal something about us, something about what we are capable of doing. And that might be scary. Paul wants to warn the Corinthians. Paul wants to warn us against thinking that the Bible is talking about someone else has nothing to do with real life. And this is how he puts it. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Someone who becomes a critic of the Old Testament looks at the way God acts usually. And they say, look at how God was temperamental. He's emotional. He's punishing people for their sins. But what they always forget to mention is what the people did that incited God to anger. When you read the Old Testament, don't you find the Israelites doing some very, very foolish things? The temptation for us and for the Corinthian congregation is to say, well, yeah, they were different. 
They didn't have the blessings that we have. They didn't have baptisms. They didn't have the Lord's Supper. They didn't have Bibles that they could hold in their hands and read whenever they want. They all lived before Christ's coming. They all lived before Jesus was born, a human baby, grew up, died on a cross, rose from the grave. So they were just different. They were underprivileged. Paul wants to say, hold on, because look at what they did have. The Israelites, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, chose a leader, Moses, to lead them out in the mass exodus. They came up to the Red Sea. What are we going to do? We can't swim across. God parted the Red Sea, and they passed through on dry ground. When God led the Israelites through the wilderness, he provided for them manna and quail, food from heaven. It just miraculously appeared for them. They ate every day, had enough to eat, them and their families, because God was providing so well for them. And out there in the wilderness gets pretty dry, so God provided for them water from a rock in a miraculous way for all to see how great God was. So yeah, we have great things that we look to for God's love, God's providence, God's grace, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all these other things. But the Old Testament Israelites, they had a lot going for them too. Paul compares their passing through the Red Sea. That was kind of like a baptism, Paul is saying. They ate manna and quail. They drank miraculous water. That was kind of like a, a holy meal, Paul is saying. And yet... Many of them ended up on the desert floor dead. What happened? Did God change his mind? Did God react to them? Is God emotional? No, the fact is that God has never changed. The God of the Old Testament is still the same God we worship today. He has always been a God of power, of grace, of providence, of love. God has always given us everything we need, but what's the danger here? How did these Israelites end up dead? And Paul explains that next. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. How many stories of a car crash caused by texting and driving do you need to hear before you think twice about picking up your phone behind the wheel? Should just be one, right? If one at all. We should just know that that's dangerous, but what happens in the moment? The buzz happens, you hear your ringtone, and you think, I'm a good enough driver. I can handle it. I can send a quick reply back to them, even though the people that keep crashing, that's the exact same thing they thought. How many stories does it take from Israel's history of them forsaking God's goodness, of them turning their back on everything God had provided for them before we realize that we are capable of doing the same thing? It should just be one, right? 
But Paul gives us three examples. Mount Sinai. God had just led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They had just seen the crossing of the Red Sea. They had already partaken in God's goodness. But God brings Moses up on Mount Sinai and talks with him. Moses is a long time coming down. So what do the Israelites do? They get bored. They make a golden calf. They worship it. They already show that they're not ready to do this whole worship the Lord your God and serve him only thing. They sit down, they have a meal, and the very next moment they're partying, indulging in revelry, Paul says. But before we think that that's an example enough, Paul refers to another episode in Israel's history just not too long after Mount Sinai when the Israelites, particularly the men, lusted after Moabite women. They slept with them. They did whatever these women said. They went to their temples. They worshiped their gods if it meant getting a chance to go to bed with them again. Completely turning their backs on God. And if that weren't enough, Paul shows us the example of how the Israelites complained. They grumbled against God, against Moses, his chosen representative. They complained, wondering if God knew what he was doing. If God, they criticized him, if he was really in control, if he was really going to lead them to the promised land. See all these mistakes that they made, even though they had everything given to them. Brothers and sisters, do we really think that we're better than them? That we have more blessings than they do? What happened to them is they took God's grace for granted. They assumed that God was always going to be there He was always going to have their back, so who cares if they do this or that, follow this or that path? And if we think we're not capable of making the same mistakes, just think about that time where you even came close to saying, when tempted to sin, why don't I just do it? I can always repent later. That time you even came close to saying, what's the point in going to church every Sunday Church will be there. I can take a few days off. That time where you even came close to saying, well, I'm baptized, so I know I'm going to heaven, so what does it really matter how I conduct myself now? Or that time that we even came close to saying, I'm going to do pretty much what I want for six days, and if there's communion on Sunday, I can come wash my hands and then go back to whatever I was doing. No, the, the frailty of human faithfulness is not something to trust in. If you think you have checked all the right boxes so you can just do as you please, you've done enough for God, you've gotten on his good side, so why not just do whatever you want? That's the mistake Israel made. They set their hearts on evil, destructive things. But we're not saying this morning, brothers and sisters, that you can't be certain that you're saved. We're not saying that there's no basis to be confident that God loves you. Of course there is, but there's a huge difference in trusting in the fact that you were baptized for your salvation and trusting in the God into whose name you were baptized for your salvation. There's a huge difference in trusting in the fact that you're going to come up for communion in a couple minutes for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, your washing, and trusting in the Jesus who gave his body and blood for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your cleansing, for your forgiveness. And how do we make sure 
we know the difference and that we're on the right side, it's very simple. Whose faithfulness do you trust in? Yours or God's? Whose faithfulness defines your relationship with God? Yours or his? Do you think God loves you and will save you because you've been such a good little boy or little girl? Or do you know that you can't? And the only way that you're saved is through God's faithfulness to you. Because the first option is shaky ground. It's dangerous. There's no reason to be confident because how do you know you've been faithful enough? You can't. But to trust in God who is faithful, that is sureness. That is certainty. You can know that you are saved, not because you, but because God. Look at the history of God's faithfulness. Yes, even in the Old Testament. God promised he was going to bring Israel out of slavery, and he did. God promised he was going to guide them through the wilderness into the promised land. He made that promise to Abraham all the way before Egypt and everything. And he did. The Israelites got to enjoy their own nation. They had their own place to live. And this was the staging ground for the coup de grace of all promises. God's promise to send a savior. God's promise to descend and dwell among us in human bodily form. And he did. Jesus Christ was born. And he lived among us. And he died for us, just like he said he would. And he rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering all your unfaithfulness by being completely faithful to God and his word and his law to cover you in his faithfulness, to throw away all your unfaithfulness, to completely forgive you and to give you a new relationship with God based not on your obedience, but purely on God's grace to you. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You know you can be confident that God loves you because of his faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And so you can see these gifts of God for what they are. Baptism is a great thing. We're not trying to besmirch baptism, but it's not the checking of a box it's not about you being faithful to come up to God and let water be thrown on your head. It's God's faithfulness to his promise to you, to love you, to draw you into himself, to create for you a brand new identity, to give you a new self, a new identity to live by all the days of your life. When members come up to receive communion in a couple minutes, it is, this is not going to be your checking of a box, your washing your hands so you can go back to getting them dirty the rest of your week. But this is your connection to God through the body and blood of his son Jesus. This is your forgiveness of sins, the strengthening of your faith, the closer connection to God given through the sacrament. Do you see the difference? You can see God's blessings for what they are. God's faithfulness to you. You can be confident God loves you because he's proven it, he's shown it. You can be confident that God is good because of his great goodness to you. You can be confident that you are saved because you are saved by God's grace alone. You can be confident God is with you even when 
might not feel like it. Some birds are terrible parents. You know this. They, they lay their eggs, they hatch, the chicks grow up a little bit, and some breeds of birds, they'll take their chicks, they'll push them out of the nest, won't they? And hopefully, their own children will learn to flap their wings and flutter as much as possible, and then they'll take off, and they'll finally they'll be ready to go grow up on their own. But sometimes they don't. They fall to their death. Brothers and sisters, I know you have had times in your life where you feel like God's pushing you out of the nest to see if you can fly. I know you've had times in your life where you feel like God is testing you to see if you're ready to make it out there on your own. But before we go away thinking that's how God works, Paul wants to make sure God doesn't do that. This is his reminder. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God does not push you out of the nest. You are never going through a time, no matter how much it feels like it, where God has abandoned you to see how you do. Remember, God is faithful. Faithful to his promise to never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter how it feels, God is always with you. He is always working in your life. He's always next to you to guide you, protect you, comfort you. And when you are crushed by testing and by temptation... When you are going through that dark time, whether something is happening to you or you're tempted to do something yourself, and it's hard, and you feel pressed down, and you feel abandoned, God will, Paul says, he will provide a way out. Now, some have taken this verse to mean that God will somehow throw you a rope, that if you feel like you're drowning, he'll somehow throw you a life preserver. That maybe if you're tempted to look at images on your phone that incites your lust, that your phone will run out of battery. Or if you're tempted to run out and drink yourself silly, that for some unexplicable reason, all the bars are closed and no one's selling alcohol to stop you from pursuing that temptation. And that can happen, but it's no guarantee. But let's not overlook the obvious. What has God provided you to help you endure testing? What has God provided you to help you stand up under temptation? What has Paul already mentioned? Your baptism. He has given you a new identity to remember in that moment of darkness, in that moment of weakness, that whatever sin you're tempted to do, that's not you. He has given you the Lord's Supper. To remind you, to strengthen you, to strengthen your connection to him so that you know that you are in his grace. He has given you his word for you to freely consult, for you to study diligently so that you know more about him and his will for your life. And he has given you this. He has given you each other. In this room are people who have suffered a lot of the same things you have. A lot of the same temptations you face on a daily basis. 
In this room are people who have learned through time and experience to come back to God, to trust in his faithfulness and not our own. God has given you a family, a church family, to lean on for support, to go to in your time of weakness, and to see his face in the face of your brother or your sister. That's what this morning has been about, and all Sunday mornings, all worship services. Worship at Trinity is not about celebrating our faithfulness. We are not about making it again about our obedience, how good we are to God, but it is always about celebrating God's faithfulness to his promises to us. Thank you for joining your voice in celebrating God, in celebrating his love for us. Thank you for being there for each other, for being such a church family based on the truth. Because God's faithfulness never fails. God's faithfulness is unmatched. You won't find anything like it. God's faithfulness is the reason we are so sure we are loved and forgiven and saved. Amen. Would you please stand?